Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. There was a glow about her. At least, that's what they say when there is a suitor on the horizon, right? In 1857, despite everything that had happened, Leah was on the cusp of marriage again. This time, though, she was no teenage girl, untried by the world. She was a professional woman, a genuine celebrity, in fact. While other mediums had been played for fools by predatory managers, Leah had stepped in and taken control of things for her family. She had fought Elisha Kane to a standstill when he tried to take Maggie. Yes, he did convince her sister to give up spiritualism, but Leah convinced him that a stipend should come her way. Her experiences had taken her to some of the greatest cities in the nation. She had navigated unfriendly crowds at gunpoint and held seances and sittings for some of America's most respected politicians and ministers. She had even been married a second time, although that man, Calvin Brown, had died four years earlier. So, yes, Leah seemed to have done it all. But when the Boston Courier printed their rejection of spiritualism, their shots hit home. They hurt. But Leah took comfort in finding friends on her own side. If the Boston Courier used their investigations to attack the Fox sisters, well, a competing Boston newspaper, The Traveler, was there to defend them. The Traveler printed a statement saying that the real sham was the investigation. Those Harvard professors had refused to cooperate with the mediums. Even the Cambridge Chronicle acknowledged that the professors were too biased. Leah took some comfort in that. But even having friends to return fire could only go so far toward getting her back on her feet. She and Kate retreated to New York, where they stayed with their mother at Horace Greeley's house. And for a while, Leah only gave seances to familiar circles of friends around the city. Until one evening, when they accepted an invitation to hold a seance for a small circle in Jersey City, New Jersey, a man arrived to escort her, a little older than she was. He was dressed in well-tailored clothes and offered her an umbrella to hold off the falling rain. He introduced himself as Daniel Underhill. To Leah's relief, the man was already a spiritualist. To Leah's deep interest, the man was the president of an insurance company and had managed to hold on to his money through the recent crash. The seance that night was something remarkable. You see, Leah's seances had recently been accompanied by spirit lights, like the ones that had been witnessed in seances by Daniel Hume, luminous clouds sometimes as small as a spark that would flit and flicker outside the seance circle. That night, they held a seance around the table as usual and got the ordinary knocking sounds. But Leah also pulled a few of the visitors aside, one by one. She says she picked the ones with good sense, and Daniel was among them. They stepped together into the complete darkness of a bathroom. There, as they dared to hope, the spirit lights arrived. But these weren't clouds on the edge of visibility. These lights blazed. They were so bright they lit up the entire room, and Leah and Daniel were dazed by them. Leah said the lights were so bright that her hands started to burn, and she felt faint. She turned on the faucet and ran her hands under the water, and then, together with the hostess, ran out into the backyard where she pushed her hands into the rain-wet ground. The spirit lights faded. The seance concluded, and Leah made her way home. It was only two days later that a letter arrived for Leah with a curious question. The day after the seance, it said, the hostess had looked out of her house and witnessed lights coming from the ground where Leah's hands had been. 
She examined the spot and found particles of solid phosphorus smoking in the soil. A few of the visitors at the seance had gathered to argue about what it meant. Some of them believed that this was a sign that the spirits had manifested their lights by manufacturing phosphorus from the atmosphere. Others thought that the phosphorus had been a tool used by Leah to artificially manufacture the lights. Now they were asking Leah to explain it to them. In her own words, she was painfully astonished by the accusations that she could be faking the lights. It hurt her so deeply that she didn't know how to respond. But a champion appeared. Her new friend, Daniel Underhill, was convinced of her innocence. As Leah would later put it, he came to her rescue to fight for her reputation and integrity, first among her friends, and then in the public forum. And as far as Leah was concerned, he won those fights, but he also won her heart. And it turns out that he was smitten with her, too. By the end of the month, they were married, and she was settling into his brownstone on New York's West 37th Street. Then she set about filling it up with things that were very much to her liking. Gilded wallpaper, rosewood chairs, mahogany tables, new carpets, statuary. And of course, for her music, both a piano and an organ. To this, Daniel added an aviary which he built off the dining room, filled with songbirds he bought from distant places. Suddenly living the best life his money could buy, Leah shocked her family and the interested public with an announcement. No more investigations. No more public seances. No more tests. Her career as a public medium was over. The only people to pass the defenses of her newly fortified life, she said, were those who already admired her. As always, family was an exception. Family like Maggie. Still mourning the loss of Elisha Kane, Maggie often avoided her older sister. But the newfound lap of luxury provoked her, so she struck back. The next time the two sisters faced off, Maggie looked Leah in the eye and said, Now that you're rich, why don't you save your soul? The backlash of Leah's rage tore them apart. This is Unobscured. I'm Aaron Mankey. Sojourner Truth was no stranger to a good fight. She was also no stranger to saving souls. But after the lavish disaster in the kingdom of Matthias, Sojourner could never view wealth as a key to the afterlife, or even to happiness. When she found her home base at the Northampton community, it did nothing to slow her down. Years before, she had received a call from God to be a traveler, a sojourner. So even with a place to lay her head and a circle of friends who supported her, she still had a mission. And that mission put Sojourner in the line of fire. In her day, so-called circuit preaching was hardly safe work. Wherever camp meetings were set up, they were followed by drunken, hostile men so often that they got a nickname, the Rowdies. And they deserved it, too, carrying clubs and bringing a taste for violence. They became a regular menacing presence at revival tents, and they threatened worshipers and speakers alike. It should come as no surprise, then, that they often targeted black attendees. Sojourner never lacked for courage, though. 
and she brought a power to her lectures that moved audiences everywhere she went. Here is historian Margaret Washington. To be a powerful speaker, first of all, you had to have pathos. You had to have humor. You had to sing. She had a beautiful singing voice, and she would often begin with a song. Then she'd have a prayer, and then she would speak. Her speaking was instructive. She would always talk about her life as a slave and her experience. Sojourner's messages from the spirits took some share of the credit. One young seminarian, Giles Stebbins, joined some of his family at Northampton despite opposing their views at the time. And he was a young hothead who loved to start trouble. What sort of trouble? Well, he decided to start making public arguments in support of slavery while living in an anti-slavery commune. But he was surrounded by a community that interpreted the Bible, as they say, in the light of liberty, filled with preachers and teachers like Sojourner Truth who had heard all his arguments before. Face-to-face with people who didn't think he was all that convincing, his message fell with a thud. But it gets better. Within a year of settling in among the others at Northampton, he switched sides, eventually preaching the message of radical abolition. And like Sojourner, Giles would also go on to become a lifelong spiritualist. But Northampton wasn't just a place for young bullies like Giles Stebbins to visit their family. In fact, it was there that Sojourner would reunite with her own family. Her two daughters, Sophia and Elizabeth, arrived with so much joy that others at Northampton compared the reunion to the return of the biblical prodigal son. Sojourner had lost touch with her daughters when Sophia had defied her mother and moved in with the man who took advantage of her. Now, just 18 years old and pregnant, Sophia sought refuge in her mother's company. As the baby's birth approached, Sojourner split her time between her travels and her family. It was the only thing that could keep her off the preaching circuit. In the following years, the family grew into a close unit. Sojourner and her daughters would care for each other for the rest of their lives and always stay in touch when they couldn't stay together. The pain of separation had been deep. Now they were determined to hold on to each other through whatever life tossed at them. And not all of it would be easy. The community at Northampton began to slowly dissolve as its various members went their own ways, to new homes and new missions. Sojourner eventually bought a house in town there for herself and her daughters, although she continued to travel and teach. For a time, she made her way to Rochester and lived with the Posts. Their home became her new lecturing base while she traveled to the surrounding towns. She even held one of those gatherings in Rochester's Corinthian Hall, where the Fox sisters had made that first public spirit demonstration. When the Foxes next came into town to visit the Posts, they befriended Sojourner as well. She grew in power over the years as she traveled, lectured, and faced new challenges. Here's more from Margaret Washington. As she became more and more experienced, one thing we don't have any record of her ever having talked about was Matthias. But as she got more and more experienced, then her speeches would often, when she got into the the meat of it, would reflect things she had heard other people say that she would pull apart. She also, because she knew so much scripture, I mean, for a woman who couldn't read and write, she could quote scripture. 
In one meeting held by anti-slavery speakers, a minister stood up and shouted that he hadn't heard anything convincing, just a lot of noise in his words from women and jackasses. In the shocked silence that followed, Sojourner rose to her feet and reminded the man of a biblical story. In it, a prophet was riding a donkey along the road. When the donkey suddenly stopped without warning, the prophet beat the animal. But that's because the man was blind to what had really happened, the presence of an angel that was blocking the way. She tells a story and she says, so I just want to remind the man and the audience that it was the ass and not the minister who saw the angel. And the crowd just went wild. With her knowledge of the Bible ready at hand, it didn't matter to audiences that Sojourner couldn't read. But there was only one Sojourner truth to go around. The printing presses in Rochester, Boston, and New York City, though, could send out spiritualist and abolitionist papers by the thousands. And it was their work in producing the public argument for abolition, alongside the circuit-riding preachers and traveling lecturers, that fanned the flames that she lit against the horrors of slavery. Who would get burned, though? was still up for grabs. Sojourner went to Boston with fists clenched tight. It was 1854, and thousands of reformers were converging on the city for the New England Anti-Slavery Convention and for the Women's Convention. If that was all, it would have been exciting news. But recent events had charged the meetings with passion. You see, in May of that year, a man named Anthony Burns had escaped from slavery in Virginia before being arrested by the authorities in Boston. The police there had decided to obey the Fugitive Slave Act by sending him back to captivity. But Boston abolitionists wanted a say in the matter, too. Inspired by armed rescues that had taken place elsewhere, they gathered weapons and marched on the courthouse. On the evening of May 26, the crowd of both black and white abolitionists fought a pitched battle in the streets with the court's deputies, wielding revolvers, axes, clubs, and cleavers. They tried to ram down the courthouse door, but were beaten back. Nine of the abolitionists were arrested, and their attempt to save Anthony Burns had failed. President Franklin Pierce eventually had to send military forces to escort Burns to a ship in the harbor that would transport him back south. Sojourner was in the crowd that day, held back by cavalry and Marines. On July 4th, the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society held a meeting in Burns' honor. When Sojourner stood to speak, it had been two years since Frederick Douglass had delivered his famous lecture, What to the Slave is Fourth of July? Now she stood before them to remind her audience that every northern city and town that followed the Fugitive Slave Act by sending their neighbors south into bondage was working to uphold the slave system. When Henry David Thoreau followed her on the stage, he addressed the issue from another angle. Many people in Massachusetts had been very concerned about the expansion of slavery into Kansas and Nebraska. But for years, he said, they had talked about the problem as something big, yet far away. But when slaveholders could reach into the North and use the Boston police and U.S. military as a tool, that problem stopped being a faraway thing. As Thoreau put it, the whole military force of the state is at the service of a slaveholder from Virginia to enable him to catch a man whom he calls his property, but not a soldier is offered to save a citizen of Massachusetts from being kidnapped. 
In the past, Thoreau had mocked spiritualism. He said he would prefer the revelation of hooting owls and croaking frogs to the knocking sounds, and that if the spirit messages that passed through mediums were a true sign of what life would be like after death, he would exchange immortality for a glass of beer. But he stood side by side with those spiritualists in 1854. That was Boston, though. In New York, things continued to roll forward in a tangle. In our previous episode, we talked about how the Brooklyn poet Walt Whitman embraced white supremacy as a means to conquer the land. But that's not the only way he was unlike Thoreau. Born to a Quaker family and a fan of Swedenborg's mysticism, Whitman followed an interest in spiritualism throughout his whole life. In fact, the older he got, the deeper he went. He even began to see himself as a medium, and even wrote that poets are divine mediums. Through them come spirits and materials to all the people. Whitman also sought out the friendship of the Universalist minister in New York who had worked with Andrew Jackson Davis to transcribe his spirit lectures in the 1840s. Together, they attended seances by a spiritualist named Thomas Lake Harris, a medium who wrote mystical poetry while in his trances. It was just what Whitman liked. And when Whitman attended a Cora Hatch spirit lecture, he was so inspired by her that he became determined to develop his own powers of spirit communication. Put it all together, and it adds up to one big mess. We'd like to believe that the connection between spiritualism and social causes like abolition were simple. But we've seen by now, rather than being a neat and tidy bundle of threads woven into a beautiful story, those connections were more of a snarl knot. The good and the bad all mixed together. Judging by life in New York at the time, though, none of that should come as a surprise. Slavery had been illegal in New York for years, but the city had been built on slavery. That much was clear in the view from Horace Greeley's house, It was now the home to the Fox family, but whenever Greeley returned to the city, they always had a room open for him. In June of 1860, Greeley wrote an editorial in his New York Tribune under the title The Slave Trade in New York. It is a remarkable fact, he wrote, that the slave traders in this city almost invariably manage to elude the meshes of the law. Now they bribe a jury, another time their counsels or agents spirit away a vital witness. Slave trading had been punishable by death in New York since 1820, but the brutal business carried on. In fact, not a single slave trader had been executed by 1860. It made Horace write that, To break up the African slave trade, it will be necessary to purge the courts and offices of those pimps of piracy who are well known and at the proper time will receive their just desserts. It wasn't clear how soon that time would be, though. Sojourner Truth's story, like her battles against her neighbors to bring back her son from Alabama, can help us see how the rifts over support for slavery didn't just split North from South. They split communities everywhere, even in the anti-slavery North. And it's no wonder. In 1790, just before Sojourner was born, some counties in New York had a higher proportion of slaveholding families than South Carolina. Their way of thinking about the world didn't magically evaporate when New York abolished slavery. It just went underground. And the New Yorkers who profited from slavery didn't lose their connections to the South, either. Greeley tried to point out that New York was still a major hub of the southern slave trade, even though it was now illegal there. 
Whether as investors, ship owners, or captains and crew, New Yorkers promoted and practiced human trafficking. And Greeley's Tribune wasn't the only paper to publish this kind of report. The local Evening Post reported in 1860 that the city of New York belongs as much to the South as to the North. And they made that clear as the nation's politics came to a boil. In the presidential election of 1860, which pitted Abraham Lincoln against Stephen Douglas, every county around New York City voted for Douglas. Months later, in January of 1861, when South Carolina seceded from the United States in protest, the mayor of New York called a meeting of his allies. He suggested that living under the federal government of the Lincoln administration was, in his words, odious and oppressive. He suggested that New York City follow South Carolina's example. They should secede, he said, and become a nation unto themselves. Taxes for businesses would be low, and the slave trade could continue. And some of the city's bankers and merchants were quick to sign on to this new idea. A few newspapers threw in with them as well. The city's council even approved the idea. It was exactly why writers like Frederick Douglass knew they needed to start their own newspapers. There were others around him too, like David Ruggles, who had started as a free black grocer in New York before becoming a newspaper man himself. Years before, on an early September day in the 1830s, Ruggles had opened his door to the knock of a young Frederick Douglass, who had just escaped his captivity in the Baltimore shipyards. Ruggles had mentored Douglass there in New York, even hosting the man's wedding in his living room. When he moved from New York, Ruggles found a home in a more welcoming community, in Northampton, Massachusetts. There he edited his own newspaper, The Mirror of Liberty. It served as a powerful inspiration for Douglas, showing the younger man what was possible with a printing press and a message. Here is historian Anne Browdy. What periodicals provided for them was the ability to form non-geographic communities, communities of like-minded people who did not see each other face to face. So you see the seeds of the virtual communities that have become so important in the digital age in the periodical press of the 19th century. You could subscribe to a periodical published in Chicago or Milwaukee or Boston, no matter where you lived, and you would receive it through the mail And you would see on it the names of other subscribers in your small town or in your state. But there's more. Here's historian Mary Gabriel. It was really fascinating. And it wasn't just in the United States. It was in Europe as well. Every organization, every political party, every group, the farmers groups, the coal group, you know, coal miners, everyone had a periodical. When the Spirit spoke from the pages of black newspapers like the North Star, they offered a vision of liberty and equality for black Americans that was frequently repeated in the spiritualist press. And as we've mentioned before, spiritualists were also launching newspapers of their own. From the beginning, the treatment of spiritualism in Southern newspapers was chilly at best. One paper in 1851 railed against the buffooneries of the foxes and the fishes. Spiritualists, they wrote, were ardent zealots, weak-minded enthusiasts, and gullible dreamers. The following year, in 1852, the New Orleans Daily Crescent reported that Thomas Lake Harris, the spiritualist poet who Walt Whitman liked so much, had arrived in their city. He was staying at the Veranda Hotel for the winter, 
and was willing to receive visitors in his room for private seances. But it wasn't published as an advertisement. The paper claimed that he was trying to raise an army of converts to his new faith, and warned that some of the respectable citizens of New Orleans were leaning his way. Years later, when southern states started seceding, they also started rejecting shipments of spiritualist newspapers because they considered them abolitionist publications. The war of words and ideas fought in the 1850s was leading towards something darker. The isms of the North were scorned in the southern press, viewed as attacks that threatened the wealth and power of slaveholders. But those attacks were just beginning. New York was filled with conflict, and it wasn't just struggling over questions of slavery and abolition that put spiritualists at the center of the fight. Even as the identity of the nation and its relationship to the abuses of slavery fueled round after round of fighting, spiritualism itself was still on trial in New York. The tests undergone by the movement's most prominent figures sometimes took odd turns in the headwinds of history. That was clear to see in 1860, when Maggie Fox, now in her late 20s, a Catholic and a veteran performer, but also a reformed spiritualist, agreed once again to be party to an investigation. Maybe it was Kate who convinced her, because they took this test together. They weren't alone, either. There was a huddle full of spiritualists floating out on the water, because it was a day for public spectacle. The city of New York might not have executed any slave traders, but they were still willing to execute people like the notorious pirate John Hicks. A six-day trial had convicted him for murdering three men at sea, and when his confession followed, he admitted to a wild story of jumping ship to ship, leaving a trail of dead behind him. His final crimes were described in action-packed detail and were published alongside a full phrenological diagnosis of his mind. But phrenology wasn't the only tool to be used on him. There were also plenty of others who wanted to see what would happen when he crossed that boundary between life and death. For that, they decided, spiritualist mediums were just the people to call. On the day set for his execution, crowds lined the streets to watch him go by. He boarded the steamship called the Red Jacket, accompanied by a corps of Marines and two Federal Marshals. The spiritualists were already on board the ship, They made for an island in the middle of the harbor where the gallows waited for him. Here is historian Kathy Gutierrez. So there's this floating uh, seance, basically, that is surrounding this island with the expectation that at the moment of this guy's death, that they would be able to communicate with him. It was also something like a floating reception. In fact, refreshments had been set out for the gathered mediums, all while the execution moved forward. On his way to the noose, Hicks didn't seem to show much interest in the spiritualists, but they were hoping that in the presence of so many powerful mediums like the Fox sisters, who were so attuned to the spirit world, his death would produce some kind of amazing spiritual revelation as his soul departed his body. But those hopes were dashed, In fact, Hicks was hanged with hardly any notice or additional fanfare. Here's more from Kathy Gutierrez. Well, embarrassingly enough, these spiritualists, much like graduate students, were so excited about the free food and drink that they completely missed the hanging and were busily chowing down on the cucumber sandwiches 
and no communication whatsoever took place. It was another huge embarrassment for those who wanted spiritualism to finally be proven in the light of day. The critics decided to rub it in, too, writing that the pirate spirit had been dispatched so speedily that he flew right past the watchful eyes of the mediums. The incident was so embarrassing that it simply was left out of most spiritualist writings. But there was another hanging that spiritualists and abolitionists were keen to get into the papers. The execution of John Brown, for the raid on Harper's Ferry. Brown had already been a hero of abolitionists before he attacked the arsenal in the hope of arming a slave revolt. He'd once liberated 11 people held in slavery in Missouri, and led them over 1,100 miles through four states, dodging federal troops and a volunteer militia along the way. Afterwards, he met with Frederick Douglass and other leaders to recruit them into his plan to fight slaveholders elsewhere. Captured later in Virginia, John Brown was sentenced to hang. Oddly, the Virginia state government forbid any journalist from a northern paper from witnessing the execution. One man, Henry Steele Alcott, was able to evade this prohibition, though, and sent his report back to the New York Sun. Alcott would play a later role in the spiritualist history that we'll explore in future episodes. For now, though, the important thing is that he got his message out. And because of that, the news spread. Brown was mourned and celebrated at the same time. Harriet Tubman, who was at one point planning on joining John Brown at Harper's Ferry, told one spiritualist editor that it wasn't really John Brown who had been executed, it was Christ. From his exile in the English Channel, Victor Hugo agreed. He wrote a letter to friends in Haiti stating that what the South slew was not John Brown, but slavery. Abolitionists and radical spiritualists agreed. John Brown's body might have been rotting in the grave. But his soul was marching on. It had always been about carrying messages. Whether we can count the beginning of spiritualism from the Shaker Girls or from Andrew Jackson Davis, or even further back from Sojourner Truth's messages from her father— Spiritualists had long felt they had a responsibility to pass along the word from beyond death. So in 1857, spiritualists in Boston founded a newspaper that would do just that, print messages from the spirit world. It would be one of many spiritualist newspapers over the years, but whether they knew it or not, it was a monumental moment in the history of their movement. Their newspaper would tell the amazing stories of the mediums who delivered all those messages to their seance circles. It would become the foundational voice of spiritualism for decades, and they called it the Banner of Light. I don't think many historians would contradict me if I said that the two most important periodicals were the Banner of Light, published in Boston, the longest lived and most widely read of the spiritualist periodicals, followed by the Religio-Philosophical Journal in Chicago, which was really the voice of the Midwest. For many in the North, it was precisely the message of radical reform coming from the spirits that attracted followers to spiritualism, even while its claims to prove contact with the dead remained in doubt. Below the Mason-Dixon line, though, that picture was often inverted. Where we have evidence of spiritualism catching on among wealthy white families, it was often achieved by cutting off the idea of a reformation in the spirit world. 
Take Sarah Morgan, for example. Her diary would make her one of the most well-known recorders of Southern life among Louisiana's prominent families. Her father was a respected judge in Baton Rouge, her brother was a judge in New Orleans, and her family numbered among Louisiana's most wealthy. Sarah would read the newspapers with her father, and they got word of the table-turning and spirit-knocking in 1848. In the following years, those spirits populated Sarah's world. When her brother Jimmy traveled to England, he wrote home describing a seance he attended, and Sarah herself tried to summon spirit-knockings alone at home, without success. After her father, brother, and husband all passed away, Sarah longed to communicate with them, so she turned to spiritualism. It's said that she would end each of her daily deliveries of flowers to their gravesites with a visit to a local medium. When rumors began to surface that her late husband had slept with the family's governess, the medium delivered his spirit into the room where he assured her that he had been faithful. Despite what other white Southerners might have said, Sarah never gave up her enthusiasm for speaking with the spirits of her dead family. As she got back on her feet and began to travel, she made regular stops at seances around the world. She sat with mediums in New York City, London, and Rome. She interpreted dreams and talked about the personal prophecies she had received from spirits. But their messages were rarely more significant than news about her own life or people in her family. And she carried a lifelong hatred for the North and its radicalism, a hatred that would blossom in the 1860s when two more of her brothers were killed during the Civil War. But a spiritualism that ignored the call of liberty and freedom wouldn't have sat well with Sojourner Truth. In fact, as she got older, she turned her eyes to the West. In a tour through Pennsylvania, she met white farmers who were laying plans to move westward. They said they wanted good men and women to work their farms on shares. Conversations like that convinced her that if black families went west, they might be able to find a place to become self-sufficient. Her dream of future prosperity was golden fields of grain rather than the gold mines of California or Colorado that seemed to be the most popular choice. But it wasn't just future prosperity that attracted her. It was also the need for abolitionist voices raised among the settlers on west land. Sojourner had preached social reform in the rough and loud New York of the 1830s, Now she saw the need to bring a voice of liberation to the lawlessness of the West. At the 1856 Anti-Slavery Convention, Sojourner laid plans with friends who called themselves the Anti-Slavery Apostles. They vowed to transform the American West, and they wasted no time. Their mantra was, no union with slaveholders. Sojourner set out immediately to organize anti-slavery meetings throughout Ohio and, finally, Michigan. And it was there that she found a town that was already a thriving spiritualist hub. They even had their own commune there, called Harmonia. Founded by Quakers, it was full of similar ideas to Northampton or Rochester. And Sojourner felt right at home. In 1857, she bought a plot of land outside Harmonia and chose her new home base. It didn't slow her mission down, though, because there were souls to be won. But not everyone, it seems, was heading west. Emma Harding was never shy, and she was paying attention. After all, she read the newspaper. It had only been in print for a year, but the Banner of Light had already claimed the top billing among spiritualists across the nation. Plus, with mystics like Thomas Lake Harris taking up residence in New Orleans, and families like the Morgans embracing spiritualism, 
the editors of the Banner of Light felt that Louisiana had something for them to see. So in 1856, they crossed the Ohio Valley and the Mississippi River to lecture on spiritualism in New Orleans, and despite the reputation of their northern religion, the city lit up on their arrival. It set a precedent and became an inspiration. The next year, Emma Harding laid a course for her seance tables in New York to the National Spiritualist Convention in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Then, in August of 1859, she would hit the road. Her first stop was Memphis, Tennessee, then Evansville, Iowa, and then a trek through Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, and the Carolinas. From the first days, though, Emma was met with a violent reaction. At her first Tennessee lecture, someone outside the hall where she was speaking threw a stone through the window. It rolled to her feet while glass shattered onto her audience. Things only got worse from there. The Memphis Inquirer published an editorial calling Emma an outside agitator who threatened a favorite Southern institution. No one was confused about what that meant. She had flown south on the winds of abolition. Emma's last lecture in Memphis was ultimately canceled when a group of rowdies threatened to lynch her and anyone who came to hear her speak. She tried to counter the accusations of being a Yankee infidel by pointing to her British birth, but papers along her route continued to burn her to the ground before she arrived. Further death threats fell on her in Tennessee and South Carolina. Later, Emma would write that at every turn on the tour, she saw the bitterness of slaveholders toward the advocates of freedom. So it should come as no surprise that she arrived in New Orleans feeling weak and dispirited. But that weakness soon became a demonstration of strength. Here's historian Emily Clark. She's delivering a lecture in New Orleans at one of the fraternal lodges. And she begins to get tired. Now, she'd been lecturing on spiritualism and demonstrating for a while now. So she's tiring and her spiritualist demonstrations are suffering. As this is going on, a black Creole man was walking by and he's supposedly seized by a spiritual force that pulls him into the auditorium. Emma invites him to come up on the stage, as she says, because he is full of electricity. And he and Emma Harding have this spiritual affinity, it seemed. So he remains with her on stage and she uses that connection between them to draw power and she continues these demonstrations for a couple more hours, just leaving the audience enthralled. If they were enthralled at this connection, though, anyone who knew the man wouldn't have been surprised. His name was J.B. Valmore. He was a blacksmith, but that was just one of his jobs. He was also known as a remarkable spiritual healer. In fact, Valmore's blacksmith shop had become a meeting room where he would hold seances and receive visitors who wanted to be healed by his power. And he'd been doing that work for years. Just one year earlier, the police had raided Valmore's house in the middle of a seance on the suspicion that he was practicing voodoo. Many white folks in New Orleans were afraid of being spiritually attacked by their black neighbors, so they used the police like a tool to combat that fear. In fact, ever since the successful revolt that won Haitian independence from France in 1804, whispers of voodoo among white slaveholders had escalated into violence. In 1850, the state ruled that free blacks didn't have the right to organize religious groups. In 1855, those rules tightened further, forbidding scientific, literary, and charitable societies as well. But there were some in the Afro-Creole community of New Orleans who counted spiritualists among their number. 
And in the coming years, they would work with Valmore and others to form an enduring partnership, a harmonial circle that would record remarkable seances. And along the way, they would also bear witness to some of the most terrifying moments in the city's history. Now that you're rich, why don't you save your soul? That was the question Maggie had thrown in her sister Leah's face after seeing her rise above troubled times on a ride of insurance money. We can imagine that something similar might have occurred to Emma Harding as she finished her southern tour. She said she witnessed the horrors of slavery as she traveled through the Deep South. For her own part, she faced day after day of southern ministers who shouted at her, proclaiming slavery to be a divine institution— and calling Emma an infidel who sought to overthrow the divine order. But in the final stops on her tour, she found devoted spiritualists who were beaten down by their world. They were looking for hope, and Emma saw little of that divine order around them, especially when she talked to women who crowded in so close to her lectures that they overflowed the seats to sit and stand on the floor. They needed a vision of another world to lift them out of their life of suffering. As far as Emma knew, That world was already open to them, and the spirits led the way. When she steamed into Mobile, Alabama, though, Emma was met by signs on the wall. They announced a new order from the state legislature. No infidel lecturer was allowed to speak anywhere in the entire state. Here is historian Molly McGarry. Before the Civil War, the Alabama and South Carolina legislatures prohibited seances and other gatherings in their states, which I found particularly interesting because we know the way that religion was prohibited and was seen for enslaved people as a way to organize. So so religious gatherings at certain times in different states across the South were made illegal. But the fact that Alabama and South Carolina bothered to put this newly into their laws suggests that perhaps there was something going on and that the spread of spiritualism, like the spread of the abolitionist publications that were making their way south from the north, was seen as particularly dangerous. Despite these warnings, Emma was met with so much interest that she held seances three times a day. But her messages weren't encouraging. Under the guidance of the spirits, Emma foresaw the conflict between the North and the South coming to fruition. What she meant by that was simple enough. War. Emma declared that the peace of Alabama would soon be broken. Days were coming, she said, that would be full of mourning and lamentation. Although many of the people she encountered on her travels there already seemed to be living through a portion of that. In 1860, Emma headed back North. The spirits had a plan for the South, but she certainly wasn't necessary for their fulfillment. They'd already been speaking before she arrived, and they certainly weren't about to stop. That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Stick around after this short sponsor break for a preview of what's in store for next week. Next time on Unobscured. By 1863, with two years of the war behind her, Cora now channeled a spirit that cried out for, and I quote, a holy crusade to eliminate slavery and redeem the land from its bondage and its sin. This new message directly aligned her with the radical Republicans 
and their liberal social reforms, and with President Lincoln's rhetoric about the war. In fact, Lincoln spoke of the fighting as a national blood sacrifice that might cover the nation's sins of slavery, which, of course, had been Sojourner Truth's message for years. In fact, few traveling speakers campaigned harder for Lincoln's re-election than she did, but other spiritualists did join her at meetings across the Northeast. Once, Nettie Colburn was a featured speaker at a campaign rally. In her trance, the spirits offered his gathered supporters the kind of certainty that forecasters today are always hoping for. The spirits were certain that Lincoln would win. Later, Sojourner traveled to Washington and met with Lincoln, but their conversation, as far as we know, was little more than a brief exchange of courtesies. Other mediums, though, would get far closer to the president. And not always for the best. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane in partnership with iHeartRadio. Research and writing for this season is all the work of my right-hand man, Carl Nellis, and the brilliant Chad Lawson composed the brand new soundtrack. Learn more about our contributing historians, source material, and links to our other shows over at historyunobscured.com. And until next time, thanks for listening. Unobscured is a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.